I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer is a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen. Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart. I have to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stucky's ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long-ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. So now you know. This is Andrew Schwartz in today for Bob Schieffer, who's on assignment. I always wanted to say Bob Schieffer's on assignment. Today we have with us Dan Abrams, the chief legal affairs correspondent for ABC News and longtime broadcast journalist, writer, lawyer, and entrepreneur. Dan made his television debut on Court TV covering the O.J. Simpson trial. In 2000, he covered the Bush versus Gore Supreme Court battle for NBC and was the first network journalist to correctly interpret that decision. In 2001, he began hosting his own show, The Abrams Report, which he did until about 2006, when he became the general manager of MSNBC. Under his leadership, MSNBC's ratings increased by 62 percent. In 2007, he began hosting his next show, The Verdict with Dan Abrams. After leaving MS to join ABC, Dan co-anchored their evening program, Nightline. In addition to all these accomplishments in broadcast journalism, Dan has written numerous op-eds, three books, founded his own media company, Abrams Media Network, which is uh, behind the vertical Mediate, and many others, and is the co-owner of the New York restaurant, White Street. Dan, you have quite the resume. What's led you to do so many things? Well, you know, look, the digital landscape is such an enormous opportunity for anyone in media that I, I simply couldn't give it up uh, when I had the opportunity. Back in uh, 2008, 2009, I saw that there were still a lot of holes in the digital landscape. And for me, that was more exciting and interesting than almost anything else I've done. And so being able to launch all of these web properties from Mediaite, you know, Law News, my newest one. Um, we've got a great girl geek site called The Mary Sue, uh, a fashion site for women of all sizes called Runway Riot. I'm a co-owner of a site that corrects the record on false gossip. Um, and the key has been finding underserved markets, so to speak, in digital. Um, and look, as a result, I've had some failures, right? There's been some stuff out there that I've started um, that didn't take off. And the fun part has been figuring out what works and uh, what doesn't. And that's what drives me every day. Well, what's worked for you? 
Well, Mediate is huge, obviously. I mean, you know, Mediate does roughly seven plus million unique visitors a month, uh, you know, competing with the biggest political entertainment sites uh, out there. I mean, it's not competing with TMZ, but certainly can compete with Politico and The Hill in terms of traffic with a, a, set, a staff that's at one-tenth their size. So, you know, that's been a lot of fun. And the law site, which just started six or seven months ago, has been my fastest growing site to date because what it's really doing is a team of lawyers are looking at what's in the news and analyzing that through a legal prism. And I couldn't believe no one else was doing it. Well, you're one of the few journalists who's been entrepreneurial and has been able to create your own media company, not just around your own personal brand, but like you said, Mediate's huge. And now you're creating other verticals in niches that didn't exist before. How did you get the idea to do this? And, and you know, it takes some courage. It takes some risk. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, look, it was, it was the sort of thing that, that I knew I wanted to do, but you're right, it, it meant sacrifices, right? So first at NBC, um, I had to give up my, my anchor role at MSNBC to go part-time to be able to start this. And that meant giving them back money. Um, and you know, some people say, oh, come on, he must have been fired, they must have you know, pushed him out. And from my perspective, you know, nowadays people would understand it. But in 2008, people thought, oh, no way. Someone would give up an anchor gig to, to start a... And who in their right mind would give a network back money? Exactly. And now I've done that twice. <laughs> Meaning I did, it with, I did it with NBC to start the company. And then um, with ABC, I hosted Nightline for a while and realized that, you know, I really missed the digital. Meaning, for a from ABC's perspective, if I was going to be the co-anchor of Nightline, it was going to be my full-time job. And, you know, from my perspective, doing uh, what I do in digital media was more important to me. So I worked at a part-time... And again, and again, Nightline's one of the, you know, the great long-form television programs in the history of news. Ted Koppel, of course, made it famous. Um, you certainly had a chance to take it back to prominence. Yeah, and, and but I have a much more of a chance to have true influence with the digital media properties. Uh, and that's sort of the point, is that, again, I, I, had, you know, I had an out in my contract and, and gave ABC back money to let me go back into digital and stay with ABC, meaning I love working for ABC. I love doing the legal stuff. I have a great uh, part-time arrangement with them, and it's the best of both worlds because I think in this in this new media environment, um, you know, particularly for on-air people, having other people be able to control your destiny is a scary thing. Um, and you know, for me, uh, I have the luxury now of being able to keep my toe in the on-air media world, more than my toe. I mean, I'm on you know, Good Morning America most mornings, et cetera, but, but ABC has been really understanding of my need to, to really focus on the digital side of it. It's just, it's simply so much more valuable than, than my on-air career that it wasn't even close. So what does it take to be successful in digital these days? Look, it, it takes finding something unique and presenting it to an audience. So you, you can do one of two things, right? You can either have an enormous amount of funding 
and you can go out and you can hire top people with big followings, et cetera, um, you know, the way that something like, you know, Vox uh, has done. Um, and you can, you know, you can create a, a serious news operation media entity pretty quickly. If you don't have that kind of major funding, you have to do the kinds of things which I do, which is trial and error uh, and test out with just tiny little staffs which of these little sites could work. And then when you see the bubbling, you bet on those. Um, you know, I've been in slowly increasing the staffing at Mediate rather than starting new sites because I keep seeing the increase in interest and traffic and engagement in that particular site. Um, so, so for us, the key has been finding those underserved uh, niches with a unique voice. And look, and, and you know, and what's, I think what should be reassuring to capital J journalists is that aggregation, just pure aggregation doesn't really work very well anymore. It used to be a kind of a race for Google search. Um, and, and now I think unique content is much more um, roundly rewarded than before. Why? Because these days, traffic to websites is coming primarily via sharing and it's coming via social media. And sure, look, if, if BuzzFeed aggregates a story from somewhere else, will people share the BuzzFeed version? Uh, yeah, maybe. But, but that original source becomes really valuable in terms of sharing it. And, and as a result, uh, you're seeing real benefits to something like Law News, which does a lot of original reporting. And as soon as they do, and they put out their unique um, reporting on it, a unique take on it, you see the traffic immediately pay off. So, so that should be reassuring uh, to some. Well, and the content has to be good. But how do you know what's good in this environment? Well, but, but good to me is different than unique, right? Which is that you can have, you can have good, which is good writers, smart people, um, saying, you know, sort of interesting things. But, but what really works is more than good. It has to be, oh, huh, that's an interesting take. Huh, why is no one else saying that? Um, or, oh, they dug through all the records to find out how many times Donald Trump has been involved in lawsuits, even though he says he almost never gets sued. Oh, that's interesting. Look, it, it's hard work. And, and I guess my point is that there are a lot of journalistic purists who have complained a lot about where we are as a, you know, as a, uh, as a medium, where journalism is today. And my response to them is, fair enough, uh, fair concerns, but don't underestimate the value of original reporting and unique content because it is being rewarded on the internet. Let's talk about social media as a driver and as just a, a platform in and of itself. Many, uh, the conventional wisdom used to be you'd be able to use Twitter or Facebook or even Snapchat or some of the other Instagram to drive traffic back to your owned and operated website. Now we know that a lot of uh, consumers are consuming media um, right on those platforms themselves. Do you care whether someone consumes your content um, on social media, or is it more valuable to you and better for you if it comes directly back to your site? 
Well, look, sure I care, and obviously it's better if they come to my site. But the reason that um, many, most of the big publishers are agreeing to instant articles on Facebook and something called AMP on Google um, is because they're helping to market, right? They're helping you market your site. And if you don't play by the games, by the rules of Google and or Facebook, you'll be punished. Now, you can say, I'm not going to do it. Uh, people aren't going to come to my, you know, if people aren't going to come to my site, then I'm not going to effectively give away or at a discount um, uh, give my content. Uh, you know, for a publisher of my size, it's a no-brainer. Uh, we have to abide by those rules. We have to agree to um, instant articles on Facebook, which we're implementing uh, now. We have to, uh, and Google AMP is basically something whereby they give you um, preference on Google search. You'll see this right now, there's a carousel at the top on mobile. They're changing that to give it even more preference for your stories if you agree to basically limit the amount of ads and put it into this Google system. Look, both Facebook Instant Articles and this new Google system reduce the amount of revenue that you can get from each and every story. But they are the games in town, and they are the way people are going to see your stories. And you have to do it. Does it make you nervous that Facebook is becoming the publisher or AMP is becoming the publisher? Does it give them power um, that is, you know, harmful to journalism in any way? Well, look, it gives them uh, enormous power um, and certainly uh, could have an enormous impact on journalism. But again, this comes back to my previous point, which is I think that both Google and Facebook reward really unique content. Um, again, from, a, from both a sort of uh, macro perspective of how these entities work, um, but also, for example, on Facebook in terms of sharing, um, you know, unique content uh, it, it gets an advantage. I can tell you, I see sometimes on Google search, we will suddenly see um, a story, or even in Google News, right? Google News will pick up some story that Mediate did uh, 12 hours earlier, and it will suddenly pop. But you know what? Most of the time, it was a pretty unique story that Mediate did. It wasn't just, you know, Mediate aggregating a story from somewhere else. Does that mean that the system is perfect? Absolutely not. But, it, it, but, it, but it's better than you might think in terms of sorting the wheat from the chaff. Do you feel like you have any say in terms of Facebook and, and AMP and other social media platforms that you're putting your content on? No, <laughs> none. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, look, if we were a bigger public, you know, look, we do, let's say we do between 10 and 15 million unique visitors uh, a month. Um, you know, that puts us, that means, yeah, we do well, but we are not Yahoo, we are not, NBC or ABC, um, you know, we're not the New York Times in terms of the kind of traffic we do. And as a result, we don't have uh, the muscle to try to enforce serious changes. And the truth is, any one of those entities on their own would have a lot of trouble muscling 
Facebook or Google. The only way they'd be able to do it is if they banded together um, and basically said, no, we're not going to do it uh, this way. And look, and, and to give credit to Facebook and Google, look, they're obviously doing it to benefit their own businesses, but they're also doing it to make the user experience better. Right? So, so on Facebook instant articles, the idea is supposed to be you don't have to, you know, you can just scroll through, read it right there, and keep going. Now, of course, from the Facebook perspective. It's a terrific interface. Yeah. But from the Facebook perspective, it's, you know, obviously it's keeping them on our site. We don't want them to go anywhere. I get it. Um, and, you know, that's not good for me. But as a, not, as, not, as a business for a Facebook, but also for the user, you can understand why less ads are better, um, why having it uh, more easily accessible is easier, et cetera. But it's dangerous, meaning, you know, it is scary stuff for publishers to examine how much power uh, Facebook and Google have uh, in terms of determining our future success. Now, publishers get together at conferences. They see each other. They see each other uh, in restaurants, Michael's, for instance. Do, there, there's, there's talk about this, but do you see any um, momentum towards publishers getting together and saying, listen, we all need to go to Facebook and make this a little bit more in our terms. We're providing the content. No. Um, you know, if, they, if those conversations are happening, it's more just, ah, you know, we had to give in or, you know, it, no, there's no, I think, look, I think that, that mainstream uh, media entities, forget about independent publishers like myself, I think mainstream media entities are scared of the power that Facebook has. And, and when you think about that, you can also think about the fact that, you know, you look at a Yahoo, right, and you talk about the potential that it could have had, it might have had, et cetera. You know, that's the sort of thing. You know, remember, they used to be in the search business. Or they probably guess they still are. But, but you know, it, there are a lot of opportunities that they had to become more than just, because they're a monster in terms of traffic. But... Traffic is only one thing, and, and if you don't have the ability, and this is why Amazon is doing so much of what it's doing, right? They, they want to be the place you go for your everyday life when you buy things, when you, and, and I think as a result, they're going to become a major public, putting aside the fact that, you know, the Washington Post, et cetera, but I just think that, that when, when you think about the future of media, Think about where do people go to live their lives. And wherever those things are is where media is going to become incredibly important and pervasive. And right now, Facebook is one of those places. People live there. People go to Google all the time to get information. Uh, people go to Amazon to buy things. And I think that those are the kinds of companies that are going to continue to have enormous influence on media entities that aren't in businesses beyond content creation. That's a really good point. I mean, you know, podcasting, for instance, 20% of Americans have now listened to a podcast, according to the Pew's most recent survey. Um, most of podcasts are downloaded off iTunes, but people believe the next place that podcasts are going to be featured and consumed is going to be on Amazon. Yeah, I would expect that. Why not? 
Um, yeah, they're already in the audiobook business in a big way. Exactly. And then the question is going to be, okay, how much are they promoting us? Well, where are they putting us vis-a-vis other podcasts? It's the same question that we're facing every day with regard to, to publishing. Look, the good news for us, and I hope it continues, but one of the saving graces for a Mediate or the Mary Sue has been that we have a lot of front page traffic. So we have a lot of people coming to see what do you got. Um, but anyone who is largely dependent on traffic coming in the sides, um, search via social media, and, look, and obviously we are too, but you're, there are many places which are even more beholden to that sort of traffic. Their entire livelihoods are dependent upon these entities' um, decisions about how to go about promoting or utilizing your content. Well, it's got to be an incredibly exciting time for you as an executive uh, at the head of a media company. It's great. I mean, look, every week we have a a meeting with my dev team, the sales team, business development, et cetera. And, you know, we're kind of trying to figure it out. We're saying, oh, you know, should we do this? BizDev says, oh, I met with uh, two companies who were offering this and this. Uh, what do you guys think? Um, oh, what do they do? Well, okay, what would be the downside? Um, and we, you know, we go about trying to figure out this very new frontier, um, and it changes every day. So, yeah, in that sense, and this goes back to one of the first questions you asked me about, you know, about why I do what I do. You know, being a television news broadcaster is really um, fun and it can be really rewarding. Um, but being a digital media um, creator, uh, executive, allows you to do so many new things and learn so much about such a, a quickly changing industry that, that I think that there's a, 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 you know, a real argument that it's a lot more challenging and exciting um, than, than just uh, being a, a TV news um, anchor or reporter, which, you know, again, that's, that's not to minimize it. Let me, let me say one thing about that, which is television news, people sort of are already writing the obituary for television news it remains incredibly influential, meaning the digital media entities still comment on what is on television, be it cable, broadcast, whatever the case may be, as if they are the mainstream and these digital entities commenting on it are kind of the outsiders who are gonna tell you the truth about it. But in the end, they're still focusing on what's on broadcast and cable. And what they do on broadcast and cable, despite, you know, ratings and um, changes in what's happening there, are still very important. Let's talk about that. So you've witnessed the firsthand the cable wars. What do you think the future of cable is? Um, look, I think that there's a limited space for cable news um, in the sense that people can now get that information on the Internet. And so... Cable news now has had to fundamentally pivot to become much more entertaining. Uh, does, that, does that manifest itself in more politicized coverage? Maybe. Does it, does it manifest itself in arguments on television? Somewhat. Um, but, you know, doing a newscast on cable news 
simply won't work because people can get that information on the internet. So you have to think of cable news as what's the added value here? What are you bringing me that I don't have elsewhere? Which is why people like Bill O'Reilly and Rachel Maddow and Joe Scarborough uh, become so important in the cable landscape because people will want to come to see what do they have to say. I want to know what Rachel Maddow or Bill O'Reilly or Joe Scarborough is going to say today. And that's added value. That's not just telling me what's in the news. The place I can get that information is from them. And that's why the hosts become increasingly important. Now, look, during the day on cable, you know, it's still a lot of sort of newscast-ish type coverage, but they're not reading news. They're doing much more live segments because it's unpredictable. And you need to have that sort of unpredictable, entertaining type of coverage if you're going to have any substantive or any substantial cable news audience. You know, I started my career in journalism um, right out of grad school at um, Fox News, at the birth of Fox News in 96, before Fox News was even on the air in most markets. Fox News was headquartered in New York City, but didn't even have a, a cable system that carried it in New York City. Um, I was in the Washington Bureau and, you know, went on to work for Britt Hume and learned a lot from one of the, you know, truly great people in news in Britt Hume and uh, my dear friend, the late Tony Snow. So I was there at the sort of the birth of the competitive uh, news channel business when Fox started to try to compete against CNN and then shortly after MSNBC was born. You just recently published an article in the New York Times um, what it was like to uh, compete against Roger Ailes. And I think it was one of the most, I'm not saying this because you're on the podcast, Dan, I think it was really one of the most insightful articles I've read about cable in quite some time. Could you take us through your sort of journey in cable, what it was like to compete against Fox, what it was like to compete against CNN, what that environment was like then, and, and, and what it's becoming now? So we're talking about 2006, and um, the point I was making in the article was largely that we didn't really compete with, with Roger Ailes as much as we did emulate him. And what I mean by that is that putting aside the political bend of Fox News, right, is Fox was more entertaining. They just had a more exciting, the graphics were flashier, the sounds were better. Um, the look and the feel and the presentation from the anchors, et cetera, they just did a better show than did CNN or MSNBC. And we all knew it. And so we wanted to get some of that magic in our coverage. Um, and yes, does, does the fact that Fox leans right give them a built-in audience that they wouldn't otherwise have? Absolutely. Does the fact that the left is kind of dispersed amongst all the other cable broadcasters, et cetera, hurt like MSNBC when uh, you know, it goes, tries to just go left? Yes, but that's kind of a cop-out to just say, oh, well, you know, it's all political, because it, it's not, because you're now seeing um, a lot more similarities between the, new, the uh, cable news entities because they've all 
kind of copied what Ailes created at the outset. Um, and so, you know, you do, you do see more uniformity amongst them because of that. You know, I didn't, uh, being in Washington, I didn't spend a lot of time with Roger Ailes. One thing, though, that he said to me really sticks with me. And I, one day he walked by an edit bay where I was producing a package. And I, I asked him, Mr. Ailes, you know, if you could say one, you know, what's the secret to producing great TV? What is it? And he, without hesitation, said, well, going back to my days in the early days of television when I produced the Mike Douglas show, um, nothing is better than a good booking. Nothing. Nothing will ever be better than a good booking. And I took a lot from that, and I think a lot of people in cable have taken a lot from that. You know, yes, I, I think that's, I understand why he was saying that at the time, but I don't know that that necessarily applies as much now, right? Because a, a, a good booking back then meant an entertaining guest, a guest who's going to be great, who's going to pop. Now we've moved towards the hosts having to be the entertaining people. You can't just be Larry King and be interviewing really inter interesting people and just asking them good questions. That just doesn't work on cable anymore. Um, you need to yourself be um, a kind of dynamic personality in some way, shape, or form. And you sort of need to stick to what I see in all three of the cable networks is covering the same two or three stories over and over and over again. What works? You know, what is getting ratings? And where did that all come from? Well, look, you know, and I, I know that people, you know, there are a lot of people in our media bubble who that hate that, right? They say, you know, you cover these, you know, you cover two stories and that's all you do all day. Well, I'd say two things to that. First of all, tell the audience, all right? Because they're the ones turning the channels when we do the different stories. Um, and we do tons of different stories in a day. Um, and secondly, I would say, this is a new environment. People can get that piece of information and analysis on all these different stories on the internet. We on cable news have to be different. We have to do something differently. And by sticking to one or two or three big stories that also tend to be controversial stories, at least we're making an effort to, um, you know, entertain the audience. And I know the word entertain drives people crazy, but news isn't supposed to be entertainment. And I say, you are right. You are right. But the bottom line is there are plenty of places to get old school news if that's what you want. And, they, and, and the response is, but, but why isn't that the obligation of every broadcast network? And, and my answer is, look, the nightly news programs are still not that dissimilar from what they used to be. Do they do less international news? Yes. Do they do more kind of, you know, lighthearted news? Yes. But are they still entities where if you watch any one of the CBS, ABC, NBC nightly news programs, you will walk away and knowing what the, the big important stories are of the day in the United States, you will. Um, that's just different than what you do on cable. You just can't conflate the two and say, well, why doesn't cable do that? Yeah, it's interesting because cable, you know, does 
continue to stick to these stories. I mean, we always used to say there's nothing that's exci- as exciting as a great weather story or a disaster story or um, some kind of big anniversary. I remember, you know, for the millennium, everybody, you know, we were, were so excited and, and, and trying to, you know, see what was going to happen with Y2K, for instance. Now, of course, we have Donald Trump as topic A. And that sort of seems to fit in as, you know, that is the story. And we're going to stick on that story. Well, look, it's also, you know, it's also a fascinating story. I mean, putting aside the fact that he uh, sort of surprised everyone by winning the Republican nomination, he says, you know, outlandish things on a regular basis. Um, and for a long time, that has just helped his campaign. So I think that's a, you know, I think that the Trump phenomena is a very interesting insight into America and where we are. And it's, it, I think it's a very important story, whether you love him or you hate him. Um, I think it's, 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 it's the most or one of the most important stories in America today. Does, it, does that make him a hard subject to cover as a journalist? It shouldn't be, uh, it, meaning that the media should be, very, um, should be very willing, as they are increasingly are, to call him out when he says things that aren't true, right? One of the things the media takes great pride in is facts and fact-checking. And, you know, when the media engages in fact-checking, now these days people accuse the media of bias. Um, it's not bias if it's not true. Now, look, if, if there is a, a, a highly partisan organization doing the fact-checking, it's not really fact-checking. <laughs> it's, it's isolating certain facts that they want to highlight, which is why, you know, one of the things that I think is such a tragedy in terms of the media environment we're in right now, is that there is kind of no ref that everyone trusts. It used to be that if one of the big media entities declared it false, that the candidates or whoever would really care. It would be a big deal. Now it's just written off as, well, they're just, you know, they're out to get them. They're, a, you know, look on Mediate, I, you know, I have a, a columnist who wrote a story saying that he thinks that the fact checkers uh, who have declared Hillary Clinton's recent statements as untrue are all biased. Um, and then you have people on the other side saying that the people who are declaring the Trump stuff is. And, and what is it, What a shame it is that we don't have. And I don't know. I don't know how we can create it. Right. Because it seems no matter what entity ends up doing it, they get accused of politicization. Um, do you create a fact-checking entity that has two, you know, two overt conservatives, two overt liberals, um, and then three people in the middle? Uh, maybe, but my guess is if, if there's a voting dispute and it's, uh, you know, it's four to three with the, the, the more liberals on one side, and the, that people will say, well, that's why you don't need to listen to it. Uh, you know, it, it's not, uh, it, it, we, we can't take it to the bank. And, and I just think that's really sad. I mean, look, Mediate's a good example, right? Which is, I have two conservative columnists and I have two liberal columnists. And it seems that the liberals only see the conservative columns and the conservatives only see the liberal columns. 
And what I mean by that is Rachel Maddow has publicly described Mediaite numerous times as the conservative media website. Bill O'Reilly has numerous times described Mediaite as liberal, and Sean Hannity has described it as the far-left loons at Mediaite. So you must be doing something right. Well, I, I guess, you know, but that, that's, <laughs> always, that's always the response. But I have to say that it makes me sad. It makes me sad that they can't see that, okay, we're not going to always get the balance exactly right. But it's just, you know, it's obviously an intention. The goal is to undermine the credibility of the entity doing the checking. And be it PolitiFact, be it whoever it is, it's never, you know, we all engage so much in trying to, to undermine the refs, so to speak, that the public has no faith in any of them. And, and I think that's incredibly disappointing. You know, it's all fascinating for me to observe. I've never been an ideologue. I'm, you know, a centrist. I work for a centrist organization in CSIS. One of my board members, uh, Senator Bill Brock, former Secretary of Labor, former United States Trade Representative, is often fond of saying that Americans don't just go to news channels for their news anymore or news sources for their news anymore. They go there to the ones that they want to hear from to gather ammunition, not facts. Yeah. And, and, but, and, and, the, and the flip side of that is that, that when they go to a place that doesn't just purely agree with them. I mean, what's amazing to me is always that, of course, when, when someone sees an article or a piece or a, or a video that they agree with, they think, well, OK, they got it right. Okay, fine. They got it right. But if it's something they don't agree with, it's, oh, well, they're just a liberal, uh, you know, they're just liberal hacks or they're conservative rag or whatever the case may be. And, and that's the thing that's just so ridiculous about our, you know, it, it's not just that people aren't, uh, you know, looking at diverse places. It's that when they do, they're immediately identifying them by only the things they disagree with because you're either on my side or you're on the other side. There is no such thing as walking, you know. And, and, and I have to say, you know, even though, because I, I think that Maddow and O'Reilly and Hannity are really some of the best in cable at what they do. And when they start the name calling, I, I sometimes wonder, do they know it's not true? Are they just trying to sort of get in with the, you know, with the folks on their side? Yeah, this, this really brings me to my last question. Um, with all of this going on, with all the different media we have, we have more media than ever before. But do you think that Americans are more or less informed with all the information that's available to them these days? I guess I would say that Americans are less well-rounded and maybe more informed about their own positions. So I think it used to be that people would say, well, you know, this is my take on it. And the other person, someone would say, well, you know, how do you know that? And they would give a kind of, you know, general, maybe not that specific answer. Now they can actually cite things that they weren't able to cite before to back up their, their you know, thought process. And that's more informed, but it's also less well-rounded because, as you pointed out, they're not going to numerous diverse places to get that information um, as much. And as a result, they become even more ingrained. They become even more incensed 
um, uh, in defense of their position. So is that more informed? <laughs> I don't know. I think in the end, you can make an argument it's less informed, but they certainly have more information. So in that sense, that they're more informed. Dan Abrams, fascinating stuff. We'll be watching you on ABC. We'll be looking for you on Mediate and your other verticals. Thank you very much for this interview. Sure, my pleasure. For Bob Schieffer, this is Andrew Schwartz. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at CSIS.org and check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.